0: Okay, I've got to ask a question that is going to be one of those questions that is either, like, a celebratory question or one of those, like, too soon, Brett questions. I just don't know. I'm going to ask you all, how did the baseball game end up? Celebration win. Celebration win. Woo! I didn't want to have that, you know, oh, we lost 17 to 1. Sorry for asking. I was asking because I've told some of you my baseball story and I was going to tell it to you again this morning, so that was on my mind. So I was a sophomore in high school, clean high school. Again, some of you have heard this before. And I had to have a, a PE credit, which was you know probably still the norm. In those days, uh, PE was for the non-athletic kids, or what would refer to as the nerds, which I fully should have been in. That was, those were my people. Um, but you, you didn't, as a high school guy want to go into PE because of the social stigma that at that time that carried with it because it, it meant you couldn't play any sports. Well, one of my best friends played baseball. First baseman for the uh, high school baseball team. And because of that, I had some other friends that played baseball. And so baseball being a spring sport in the fall, I said, I'm going to do baseball off-season because you can be much more socially accepted and be cool by being in baseball off-season and get your PE credit than playing like scooter basketball in the gym or whatever you did, you know, for that. So I did baseball offseason. And uh, in baseball, there's, you know, a five tool player. They've got five tools of baseball. They can hit for power and they can hit for average and they can run and they can catch they can throw. And that, that's what you want. You want this five tool player. I had zero of the tools. Um, I could not hit the ball. In fact, I was so bad. This is true. I was so bad that when I played Little League, two seasons. In two seasons, I got hit more than I hit the ball. That's how bad it, it was. And so obviously, when you can't hit, you also can't hit for power. Um, I could not. If you ever wanted to see something funny, watch me in the outfield when somebody hit a fly ball trying to track it. It looked like a baby deer that had been shot and was trying to like run for safety. Like I no clue what I was doing. The only thing that I excelled at was when we did workouts during off-season, when we had like, the coach would go out and go, hey, we're gonna uh, run a mile today, so run four laps around the track. I'd finish like second or third every time out of like the 30 guys, which if you're not a baseball fan, running a mile isn't really necessary. So the one skill that I could excel in in off-season was the skill that no one really needed because most of the guys in baseball like stand around in the outfield or stand around and they go sit down on the bench till they bat, it's, it's not... Long-distance running, and so I knew I knew what was coming when tryouts happened, and they said, "Hey, tomorrow we're going to post the list, you know, of varsity and JV, and if you're on those, you're on those." I, knew, I, mean, I didn't even have to go, but there was this part of me that was like, "Maybe I'll be on the team, maybe," and I wasn't. My name wasn't on the list. My name was written down nowhere. I'm not even sure the coaches knew my name. Um, I think they were like, who is this guy? Why is he coming out for baseball? Because I knew that it wasn't going to be in in my future, it it really was not that big of a deal. I accomplished what I needed to accomplish, which is getting the PE credit and saving a little bit of social uh, status. But to be honest, there's still that part of you. Like, even though you know it's coming, when you walk up to the list and you're preparing yourself and you go down and you're like going down to the L's for Levi and you go, ah, it's not there. Ah, maybe they did it by my first name. Uh, no, no, they didn't do that either. It's still a little bit of hurt. It's that feeling of rejection that, that I wasn't good enough and none of us, it doesn't matter if you're a teenager, which the teenage world, the kids that are living in your home feel this like it's on steroids, the fear of or the the power of rejection. But even for adults, none of us want to feel that way. None of us want to feel like we weren't smart enough, we weren't good enough to get the promotion, that we didn't have the social status to hang out with those people that we wanted to hang out with. Or, or, Or even maybe for us as believers, sometimes there's even that feeling of spiritually, spiritually, I don't, I, I'm not really much of a success like that person or this person. Have you ever had the feeling? You can be honest here. If you, if you, if you haven't had this feeling, it's great. I'm just, more power to you. Have you ever had the feeling as a parent where you like looked at your spouse or maybe you're a single parent and, and, and you just look in the mirror and you look at your kids and you, and you have this feeling, I am the worst? You ever had that? You look at everybody else's kids. And you're like, man, my kids act like this and my kids do that. Their kids don't ever do that. That's not true. Their kids just don't do what your kids do out in public, which neither do your kids. The things, the issues you have with your kids are coming within the confines of the home and they go out and they're other places and, and your friends come back and they go, your kids are fantastic. They're amazing. And you go, you don't know them, right? And then in the home, we look at how they're behaving and what they're doing and the choices they make and 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 for real, sometimes we feel rejected as a parent. Like I've just failed, I've dropped the ball. And as much as we would like to say that other people's opinions don't matter, they do. They do. I'm a person. I'm wired in such a way that by and large, words of affirmation is not my love language. Words of affirmation is seventh on the list of love languages for me, and there's only five. So, I mean, that's how far down. It is. There's two more they haven't even discovered that matter more to me than words of affirmation. I, you could come up to me, and this is, this is the way my brain works, and I'm not saying this is okay. You could come up with me, to me and go, you are the worst youth pastor we've ever seen. And I go, oh man, I'm sorry you feel that way. And you'd leave and I'd go, I wonder what's wrong with them. Like, that's the way my brain works. Like, no, there's something wrong with them, not with me. I mean, I, I, I'm wired, but still, even knowing that I'm wired that way, there's still those moments where something happens and it does, it hits, hits the heart. And it's like, oh man, I, I failed. Well, we're talking about the giant of rejection. The giant of rejection has two family members. They're like cousins and they don't look anything alike. One of them you would recognize as the cousin to the giant of rejection. And, and it looks like this, insecurity, inferiority, low self-esteem, and some of us wrestle with those things. We have this, this self-esteem, I'm just not good enough. And, and when we talk about the giant of rejection, we go, yeah, that's what that is, and I can identify that giant in my life, even though we said in week one, is already dead. Remember this David and Goliath story? Jesus is David, we're not, the, the giant's been slain, but we're still oftentimes living under the shadow of the giant. And some of us would go, yes, my self-esteem I could tell you it's not that great and it's because I'm a horrible person. That's not true, but that's how the self-esteem works, right? You go, I've got insecurity. I've got issues that, uh, that, that, I, that I struggle with. We get that and we, we understand that for rejection. I remember as a junior high kid, multiple places, but I remember walking into the youth room, living in Germany, went down to this, the place called, was the youth ministry is called Quest for junior high guys and girls. And I remember going down And my parents made us go. And I remember standing on the back of the wall, kind of arms crossed. I don't really know anybody. And and what I'm dealing with as a junior high boy is the fear of rejection. Because here's all these people that know each other. And if I walk up and I'm like, hey, I'm Brett. And they go, who cares? Which no one was going to do. But in my junior high mind, that was a very real possibility. Or if they just ignored me, I would then have all of the thoughts that I was thinking about myself as a junior high boy low self-esteem, girls don't like me, I'm not gonna make the baseball team in a few years, you know, I'm not that great or what. All of those things would then be declared true in my life. So instead of stepping into that and having it be declared true, I'm gonna stand at the back wall where it's safe and, and not, not risk rejection. Now, here's what happened. And this... This happens with adults, it's just a lot more muted than it is with junior high boys or girls. I'm standing on the back wall, and a couple of different students at different times come up and they go, hey, you know, my name's so-and-so. And they go, hey, my name's Brett. And they go, hey, you wanna, come? you wanna come sit with us? And I'd say, no, makes no sense whatsoever. Here, here I'm wanting acceptance. I'm wanting to have some relationships. But the fear of rejection, that insecurity, the inferiority was so looming in my life that somewhere deep down inside, I'm standing on the back wall when somebody says, hey, we want to accept you. Come sit in our circle. I still said no because I might get into the circle and sit down and then you might choose to reject me and it's gonna hurt twice as bad then. Now, as an adult, if your teenager told you that, like you'd look at him and go, what's wrong with you? Like, no, go. Because our rational mind as adults goes, goes that's, not, that's not how it works. <laughs> but for a teenager, it does. And for us, even though that doesn't work that way, we have our own insecurities and issues that cause us not to engage because of fear of rejection. Here, here's one way it plays out for Christian parents sitting in this room you've heard over and over and over again that God has called you to be the primary disciple maker in your home. Now, not by a show of hands. Rhetorical question. How many of us embrace that and are running after it full speed ahead? Most of us aren't. You know why? Because we're not real sure how to do it. We've got some ideas. We've got a yap that's got some questions that maybe we could ask. But if I jump into this trying to disciple my kids and it doesn't work, I'm going to sense rejection. God's going to be disappointed in me. I'm going to be a failure at what I would agree is one of the most important things, if not the most important things I'm supposed to do as a parent, and I don't want to fail because failure brings rejection, and I don't want that, and the giant looms large. Here's the other. Here's the cousin, though. Here's what the other family member looks like. Perfectionism, a drive to succeed, I'm gonna win at all costs. I'm gonna take no holds barred and go for the goal. Now, some of us might have a driven to succeed mentality and we are driven to succeed because we go deep down in our hearts, whatever I do, whatever I do, I wanna do to the glory of God. That's biblical. And I'm 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 gonna be the best at my job and I'm gonna be the best husband or wife I can be. I'm gonna be the best parent. and, And when I drive the kids to, Soccer practice, I'm gonna be the best driver to soccer practice and I'm gonna be the best volunteer coach and I'm gonna have the best orange slices and I'm gonna have the best of everything because everything that I do reflects Jesus Christ and I want people to see Jesus and I wanna give, as an ambassador of Christ, I wanna be the very best that I can. Okay. But in reality, is that really where we're at? Or we wanna be the best because if we're not, we're afraid of the rejection that sits right underneath the lack of promotion. My kids' soccer team finished in fifth place, and I was the volunteer coach. What does that say about me? And, and, and you look at your kids and go, that's irrational. It's, it's rec league soccer, it's okay not going to be the end of the world. God will still use you. But as a parent, we go deep down inside, man, I failed. I feel like I've been rejected. The giant has two different looks and both of them are extremely dangerous. And the problem is, is we have been born into a fallen world that has, has convinced us of a lie, that our worth is a lot of times based on our achievement. That you're only as good as what you've done. And that is contrary to what the gospel says. Here's a quote. If you're you're a quote writer, you write this one down. And again, a lot of what we're doing during the series comes from the Louis Giglio book, uh, Goliath Must Fall. There's copies we've got on the back that you can take home. If you go, hey, some of these really hit home and and you want to read it firsthand rather than hear it secondhand, (laughs) that's what you're getting. Take that and do it. He says in the book, this is a great quote. He says, if we live for people's approval, we'll die by their rejection. If we live by people's approval, we'll die by their rejection. And we tend to forget that God has created us for a purpose and a plan. And we get so caught up in, in trying to be, uh, feel the sense of approval, which is the opposite of rejection, trying to avoid rejection, that we'll run other people's races and try to do other people's plans than the one that God gave us. I want you go to 1 Samuel 17. We're going to go back <coughs> to the story, David and Goliath. If you missed a couple of weeks, we've been in and out of the story. The first week we did the, the whole thing all at once. If you remember, there's a, there's a war that's about to happen, a battle. The Israelites are on one side of a mountain, kind of a hill. The Philistines are on the other. And, and every morning they come down ready for battle. They're geared up. The fight's going to be on. And this giant, Goliath, who's somewhere between six and a half feet and nine feet tall, comes out. He's a giant of a man. Even if he's 6'6", he's carrying armor that's just on his chest that weighs upwards of 120 pounds. He's got a spear that, that is gigantic. I mean, so if he's just 6'6", he's a, he's a big man. And he comes out every morning as the lines are drawn for battle, and he steps out front and basically gives this call, hey, instead of everybody going to war, just pick a guy pick your best guy, send him out, we'll fight. And whoever wins, wins. And now we're going to have all kinds of bloodshed. And it goes on for 40 days. Twice a day, he comes out and taunts the people of Israel and he taunts their God. And the people, every time they go out, they're ready to fight. And they see this guy and they're like, nope, not me. Well, while this is happening, there's a guy named Jesse. Many of his sons are out at the battle, but his youngest son, David, has been home. David's taking care of the sheep. He's uh, helping his dad out around the house. and His dad says, hey, I want you to take some food to the battlefield. I want you to go and check on them and, and come back and tell me if, if they made it, if, if everything's okay. So David shows up with some things of cheese and he's there to see his brothers and he shows up just in time to, for the show. For Goliath come out and he hears it. And David, who loves God, and here's this giant demeaning God. And he loves his people. And he sees all these people in fear. And David, in his mind's going, Man, I fought bears and lions. I'll take this guy. David has no fear. He, he starts asking questions about, hey, what's going on? And then we get this part of the story that we breeze through in week one in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28. Now, Eliab, the eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Did I not just ask a question? We read this and like in the midst of the story, there's this little side where the oldest brother gets angry and takes it on David now what we need to understand is there's a backstory here. There's a backstory that predates David and Goliath. And you might know the story. The high priest at the time was a guy named Samuel. And Samuel has already anointed Saul as king of Israel. And the Lord comes to Samuel and says, hey, I've taken my spirit off of Saul. Saul is no longer my man. I'm gonna have you go and anoint the next king of Israel. I want you to go to the house of Jesse. Samuel shows up at the house of Jesse. It's a big deal. The high priest has come to your house walks in and tells Jesse, hey, the next king of Israel is one of your sons. Can you go get your sons for me? And, and Jesse goes and line, gets his sons, lines them up. And the first one, the oldest, the one who's been leading the other brothers, the biggest and the smartest and the strongest is Eliab. And Eliab's thinking, the high priest is here and he's going to anoint the next king. Well, it's not going to be the 13-year-old. That guy can't, you know, do it. It's not going to be the 15-year-old. This is my moment. I'm going to be king of Israel. God has chosen me. And Samuel walks up to Eliab, who's the firstborn, the expectation. And he gets up to Eliab and God goes, nope, not him. Rejection. And actually, Samuel goes down the line. Was it this one? Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. All the boys, nope, not him. And Samuel's going, I don't understand, God, you told me here. And he looks at Jesse, You got any other kids? And, and Jesse says, well, yeah, I've got David, the youngest. He's out keeping the sheep. Somebody had to do it while we brought all the guys in. Go get him. So, so here's what I've wondered. I, I don't know. This is theological imagination. Is it possible that when David came in from washing the sheep, that some of the other brothers had to go back out and take his place? Can't just bring David in. Maybe other servants did, I don't know. Maybe they get kicked out of the room. I have no clue, but David comes in and Eliab, the brother who had the anticipation of being king, sees David anointed as the next king. Now we fast forward to 1 Samuel 17. The battle for Israel is on. Eliab, the rejected king, the rejected son, is out with a sword in hand, potentially risking his life. And where is David, the king, the leader, the one who God's hand is on? Still at home. And then David shows up and goes, hey guys, what's going on? Hey, big brother. Hey, what's that? who's that guy? And Eliab blows up in anger. And here's the truth. Hurt people hurt people. And rejected people tend to reject people. That's how they deal with it. So if you have, if you go, man, I don't wrestle with the giant of rejection in my life you might ask somebody close to you some questions and one of those questions might be, hey, do do I invite people in or do I push people away? Am I open to loving all people or are there people that I reject and don't want any part of? Because you might find that your attempt to reject people is rooted in your own sense of rejection. And you might find out that there's a giant that still has some power in your life. So not only does David show up Eliab feels rejected and David does. David shows up, he's asking questions and his brother's basically like, get out of here. You don't have any business being here, head home. You're selfish, you're a little punk kid. But Saul hears about David's willingness to fight. So after being rejected by his brother, Saul, the king brings him in. And you remember, Saul gave him his armor and said, hey, you wanna go fight, go fight. Saul is the biggest man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's the one that should have been out fighting. David gets the armor on, what's that feeling? I, 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 don't even fit, I don't even fit in the man's world. I, I'm not like everybody else. And then he goes out face to face with Goliath. And of course, we know David's heart. David, we read it. David's like trash talks the giant. But here's what the giant says when he sees David. <clears throat> Verse 43, Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David goes out. My brother's rejected me. I don't really fit the the, the picture of manhood or battle. I can't even really get in in armor like everybody else. And then he goes up to face the foe, and the foe's like, seriously? You little kid? This is disrespect. He doesn't even have respect of the guy that he's about to kill. He's been rejected by his brother, kind of by the king, not intentionally. He's been rejected by his enemy. What is it? that made David have a sense of security about who he was that the giant of rejection did not hold sway in his life. I want you to go over to Psalm 139. David wrote this probably later in life, but we see it kind of woven through his life. Verse 13, famous passage. David says, "'Of God, for you formed my inward parts. "'You knitted me together in my mother's womb.'" I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. What what caused David in the sense of uh, circumstances of rejection to be strong, be firm. It was this understanding that he knew, you know what, it doesn't matter what my brother thinks. It doesn't matter if I fit the mold of what Saul or what the other soldiers say a a warrior should look like. It doesn't really matter what the nine foot tall giant says because I know already that God, the God of the universe who created everything, who's omniscient, all-knowing, who's all-powerful, who can do anything, that he had his eye on me when I was in the womb of my mother and he saw me and knit me together and he has had his hand on me and he knows every day of my life and what's coming because the God of the universe has seen value in me so much so he took part in my creation and has walked with me ever since. So you know what, Eliab, I'm sorry that you're upset with me. Saul, I'm sorry that I don't fit the mold Goliath, I'm sorry that you don't know what's coming and you think that I'm insulting you, but I have acceptance from the only person that matters, and that is the God who created all things. And when when that gets rooted deep inside of us, that we know that we know that our acceptance and our worth is not, not by what man says or by what we do or if we succeed or if we don't, what the girls think of us if we're a junior high boy, what the baseball coach thinks of our baseball skills, that ultimately what really matters is that the God of all creation looks at me and says, I got you, and I chose you from the very beginning. Now, your pushback might be, yeah, but that's David. I mean, David went and, I mean, as a kid, he's pretty much a stud. I mean, we already know he killed a bear Killed a lion, took a rock, killed a giant that nobody else wanted to. I've heard, I've heard along the way that David was a man after God's own heart. That ain't me. My heart's kind of dirty. Like, I, I don't really want people in my small group or people in my life to know all the things that are, that are going on with me in my life right now. I, I don't disciple my kids very well because I'm afraid I'm gonna have to get real and then my kids might know that I'm not perfect, One last passage I'm going to have you flip to. Another familiar one that maybe we just need reminding of Romans 5 8. But God showed his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The acceptance that God has for you is the same as he had for David. David wasn't perfect. We only have limited stories about David's life. We find out later for sure he wasn't perfect. But it wasn't about that. It's about Jesus, that you are worth Jesus to God. That, that's, that's how much worth you have. That when you were separated from, in sin from God, when you couldn't be on the team, when you couldn't spend eternity in heaven with him, when you couldn't walk and hear him and understand him and, and see his plan for you because of your own sin, that God chose you and loved you and accepted you and said, I want you so bad that I'll let Jesus die in your place. You're worth Jesus to God. Talk about acceptance. I mean, let me ask you this. You might have a story this way. I I don't know. Has anybody in this room ever had somebody give up one of their children, like give up their children's life for you? because they believed in you so much, because they they loved you so much, because you were accepted by them. And they went, yeah, I accept you so much, I'll I'll give my child's life for you. That's, That's absurd to think. And it is the absurdity of God that gives us the best picture of how accepted we really are. Because most of us, strike that, none of us, would give up one of our kids for somebody who had over and over and over again betrayed us. Because we don't have that kind of acceptance for other people. But God's love for you and his acceptance of you was worth Jesus to him. Let me give you, I'm going to give you a couple of verses in a second, but I'll tell you a story real quick. King Richard I from England was leading part of the Crusades. And as he was coming back from the Crusades, he was captured by the Roman Empire by, uh, I believe, it was King Leopold out of Austria, and King Richard the Lionheart was held for ransom. The ransom was 150,000 marks, which was the equivalent of three tons of silver. And so the messengers went back to England and said, "The Roman Empire has captured the king, and if you want your king to survive, if you want him back, it's three tons of silver." And the people of England so loved King Richard I, they all willingly agreed to higher taxation to bring money so they could fill the coffers. Noblemen let go of their estates and their riches to supply this three tons of silver that was taken and given to the Roman Empire so that King Richard the Lionheart would be freed. And you know what terminology we get from that story? The phrase, a king's ransom. That's where it came from that the people said, we want him back so much, he's ours, he's us, he's our king, that they gave a king's ransom. There's another story from the Crusades of a Turkish prince who was captured. And the ransom for his release was his young bride's right hand. And she willingly gave it to have her prince back. Those are some big deals. Three tons of silver in your right hand, to say, I love you and I want you back because you're a part of me. But Jesus was more than that. It wasn't three tons of silver and it wasn't the right hand of the son. It was the son himself. You're worth Jesus to God. So what do we do? I'll give you two things. One's just kind of knowledge and it's this. You you and I, we've got to know that God chose us. Deep down inside it, not not just know. I mean, we can can check the box. Yeah, I know God chose us. We have to internalize that God said, I love you, you're accepted. I want you. We saw Romans 5, 8. The scripture talks a lot about adoption throughout the New Testament. If you've been adopted, I, you know, working with kids, I've seen a lot of kids that are adopted, and a lot of kids that are adopted struggle. Because I think deep down inside, there's this, there's this question that has to be answered of why did my parents let me go? I get that. I understand that. And, even adults who've been adopted sometimes want to trace back the birth parents. They want answers. That'd be a hard thing. But you know what? Sometimes we forget. You know what an adopted kid has that nobody else, a birth child doesn't have? The adopted kid was chosen. But the parent could have said no. They could have said, I don't want that one. I don't want that one. That, that adopted kid, at some point, that mom, or, that mom and dad looked and went, that's him. That's our kid. She's perfect. We want her. That's the power of adoption. Chosen. Scripture talks about that, that we were adopted by God, that God looked and said, I want you. I'm going to throw up a couple other scriptures. Let's just run through these. John 15, 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You were chosen. You didn't come about going, yeah, I think I need Jesus. God said, man, I've, I've made it so that you can be on the team. I've made it so you can be a part of the family. I chose you. And the Father wants to give you so much. Here's what else Scripture says. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, is, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose you before you were a wink in your dad's eye. God went, I want you. Here's another one. 1 John four nineteen. very easy. We love because he first loved us. You were accepted well before you did any accepting. God, God, God looked at you as he knit you together in your mother's womb and said, I've got plans for him. I've got a purpose for her. We're gonna do great things together. She's gonna be so important to our family. We have to let that sink in and internalize it. And then here's the second thing. Once we've done that, we can do this. We have to live from acceptance and not for it. Read that again. Hear it again. Live from, is the key word, from acceptance and not for it. That's the difference between knowing acceptance or being under the shadow of the giant of rejection. Psychologists tell us, psychologists tell us over and over again that, that our need, one of our greatest needs, is for acceptance, for approval. That, that's why peer pressure is so powerful in the life of a teenager. That's why we do things still today that may defy common sense. That's why we, even as adults, some of us have friends that we'd go, man, this person's really not helping me walk closer to Jesus but we want their approval and their acceptance so much that we stay with it. So let me ask you this question, just, again, rhetorical. I'm going to give you like 20 seconds just to think. What is it that you're doing in your life? What decisions are you making? What actions are you carrying out? What paths are you walking that are simply for the approval of other people? What is it that you do because other people say yes to it? Now get whatever that is in your mind Now here's what you're going to do. Stop it. Stop it. You don't have to do it for the approval of man. If you're doing something because you want to love Jesus and you're doing it uh, from acceptance because Jesus has done this in my life, Therefore, I'm doing this out of gratitude. That's fantastic. But if you're doing it for acceptance, even spiritual things, I go to to church because I want God to bless me. I go to church because I don't want to get on God's bad side. You've already been accepted. You should show up to church not for acceptance, but because you're living from acceptance because of what God has done already in my life. I want to come celebrate with his people. I got to share the gospel with people. I'm scared to do it. I got to learn how to do evangelism. Okay, if I do it, if I learn how to share the gospel with people, then, you know, I guess that'll make God happy. God's already happy with you. You're his kid. You've been justified, made righteous. We share the gospel with people because we're functioning from acceptance because God has done a great work in our life. We're so overjoyed. We want other people to experience it as well. (coughs) I'm not a good parent. (coughs) because I'm trying to keep my kids out of jail. Not a good parent because I want other people to think good about me. Because God has been a great parent to me, I want to be a great parent to my kids. Because God has been a great neighbor to me, I want to be a great neighbor to my neighbors. Because God has given me so much, I want to bless others. It's because I live from acceptance that I've been fully accepted, not for it. There's a guy, his name's Art Nathan, and he's the one that built the Mirage in Las Vegas, the hotel and casino. He tells a story that when he was building it, uh, one of the city councilmen asked him, hey, could you come to my office? And that was a big deal to go to the office. He goes to the office and he says, hey, I want you to consider doing me a favor. He said, I got a guy. I know you're hiring a lot of people at the Mirage. I want you to hire a guy for me, if you will. Um, You're probably gonna wanna say no because he just got out of prison. He's an ex-con, but I, I, just, I don't want you to just look at him and say, no, would you just consider giving him a chance? And so Art said, yeah, I'll give him a chance. So he meets Tony. Tony's right out of prison, six foot three, muscled up, been in that prison weight room, shaved head, tattoos all over his body, and missing an eye from a knife fight. And he doesn't wear an eye patch. And so here's Art hiring for the Mirage and knows you don't hire ex-cons because ex-cons traditionally go back to prison. Three out of four people that get out of prison go back to prison. You know what the research has showed? One of the main ways to drop that number, the recidivism rate, is by employing people and helping them find jobs and make a new life. The reason why three out of four go back to prison is because nobody will hire him. They can't do anything but steal to feed their family. And he said, just give him a chance. I'll stake my name on him. And so Art hired Tony, was fully transparent with everybody on the cleaning team that he put him on. Tony's been to prison. If you haven't noticed yet, Tony's missing an eye. He lost it in a knife fight. So if you see him coming after you with a knife, you might run. It wasn't long before Tony became head of the cleaning crew and started wearing an eye patch. <laughs> but long after that, Tony began to work his way up the ranks and never went back to prison, was able to take care of his family and become a productive member of society. Great story. There's lots of them out there like that. I've been asking a lot of rhetorical questions. Here's one. Don't answer. You've got a business a multi-million dollar business like the Mirage, and someone comes to you and says, hey, will you hire this guy that lost his eye in a knife fight and he just got out of prison? Would you hire him to make your organization better and more profitable? Most of us would go, no, no thank you. (coughs) No way. Let someone else take that risk. What's amazing about the story is that somebody said yes. Yes. And here's what's more amazing. You're worse than Tony. And if we exposed your heart and my heart and the things we think and the things we say and the things that we've done. We may not have done things that the law would have put us in prison for, but compared not just to Tony's actions compared to what the law of the country says, but when we compare our actions to what the law of God says, we're worse than Tony. And so the acceptance that we have from God is much greater than Tony's acceptance from his boss. That God has written this incredible story that says, amidst all of your junk and all of your garbage, I choose you, I love you, I've got a plan for you, and you don't have to worry about rejection because the giant's already been slain. And it doesn't matter what your neighbor thinks. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks, it doesn't matter what other parents think, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks because you're on my team and in my family and we've got a plan and a purpose and we're gonna go accomplish it together. <laughs> if you can live that, you'll help your kids, talking to parents, deal with kids that have peer pressure, if you can live that and they can see it in you, it's gonna help your kids deal with peer pressure way better than if you tell them don't give in to peer pressure and they watch you give in to peer pressure over and over and over again when they see i can overcome the giant's dead i'm living in freedom because of jesus christ in my life and i don't i don't worry about rejection they can live that way too